And we're back for episode two. Michael, are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. We're going to be punchier in this episode, work through some some difficult questions regarding Revelation. But let's again start more with you personally. Um, you've gone through some intense suffering since moving here to Portland. You've shared a lot of that, uh, a lot of your story and the suffering that you've gone through with the congregation. Um how did Revelation minister to you as you thought about the point of your suffering? I think one of your sermons particularly focused on how we how how to interpret our suffering. Yeah, I think that's part of the the point of this uh, the seals, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as as uh, Christ un you know uh, opens the seals, and a, a part of what's going on there is uh, the saints suffering, and uh, in in chapter six, and they cry out, you know. Uh, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and, and avenge our blood? I think it's, it is so important for us to remember uh, that the, the suffering that we experience uh, is not unseen, it's, it's not unnoticed by God, uh, but it's also, not only that, it's not just like, oh, terrible things are happening to us, and, and He notices, and He cares, and mm. He wishes He could do something about it, and He can't, but, uh, but, but he won't forget. No, it's, it's actually uh, worse and better. Uh, worse than, no, the sufferings are under the sovereign control of God. They were planned by God. They are purposed by God. Um, but, and that might seem hard, but the, the reality is uh, it, it's a reminder to us n- nothing is happening to us outside of God's good saving purposes in Jesus Christ. And our faithfulness, our perseverance, our faith going through suffering is, is part of what God is using to bring Him glory as He vindicates the superior worth of Christ in the gospel, uh, that, that we don't count even our lives, uh, uh, but are, are willing to, to lose them for the sake of something much greater. So, I I don't understand how some of the suffering that we went through uh, is is going to vindicate God in His glory. Hmm. You, you know, I don't mm-hmm. think Revelation gives me always the 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 key to to understand like specifically how how did that work mm-hmm. and how is that going to be seen on the last day. But it gives me the trust that that it will mm-hmm. that the suffering we've been through will vindicate God. It will display His worth and sufficiency. It will. Uh, display his glory. Uh, that's that's really really helpful and encouraging. Um, I think often when we're suffering, when we're in the midst of it, we we we're just in so much pain um, that our main question, maybe at the time, is when is this going to stop? Oh yeah. And I think, in addition to knowing. God's sovereignty and how He's the Lord and how He's going to vindicate our our, our suffering, just as He vindicated His Son's uh, stripes, um, is that there there's a timetable. Yeah, there is. That's there, right. There there's an end date on our suffering, and certainly we were thinking about that in this last sermon in Revelation twenty one twenty two. You know, and just as we talked about in the previous episode, the hard thing is to to wait. We say, "How long, O oh Lord?" in the in the midst of that, um, which kind of, even though I never 
kind of grew up with this view, although I I did read the Left Behind books. You're young enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, or most of them. But uh, one of the things that you said that was somewhat provocative in regards to our suffering and future suffering is you said in the sermon series, welcome to the tribulation, oh, yeah. which um, could be confusing to people who maybe grew up with that left behind kind of pre-trib perspective because they think, oh, does that mean we're the clock is ticking and we're, you know, seven years seven or years less yeah. from, from the end? Um, is that what you meant? Is no, that... no, not at all. What what I think the New Testament teaches, and I think Jesus prepared us for this, mm-hmm. is that in this life we will have much suffering. And the word he uses is the word for tribulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That the entire age between his first coming and his second coming is for the church an age of suffering. Uh, so the fact that we are in the tribulation, because I think the tribulation... I think part of what Revelation presents to us is we're to understand this whole age as an age of tribulation. Um, it, it doesn't mean that we are any closer to knowing the timetable of when Jesus is coming back. It does, though, help us realize, oh, it's not as if something strange were happening to you, brothers. Mm-hmm. It's not as if something unusual were happening to you, brothers and sisters. No, this is what Christ promised uh, he, he promised that it would be characteristic of the world's attitude towards his followers, that the world would bring tribulation into their lives. Uh, and yet, we're told, it, even if it gets worse, uh, it, it has an end date. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it will not last beyond what his people can bear. Does the Lord use Satan to, um, to cause us to suffer? Well, I think uh, if we're to take the uh, the teaching of Revelation seriously, I think the answer has to be yes. Uh, Satan seeks to devour the church. Mm-hmm. Satan, Satan seeks to, I mean, we're, we're told um, in, uh, I guess it's uh, Revelation 12, uh, that he persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child, uh, that, that when, he, when he found he couldn't, uh, dis- destroy the church that we're, we're told again. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. So yeah, I, I think uh, I think that the I think the Lord makes it very clear in the Book of Revelation that Satan is active, is real, uh, that Satan is entirely on a leash. Uh, he is he is not uh, an independent and autonomous actor in God's universe, as if we lived in a Manichaean universe where there was good and evil equally balanced and totally independent of each other. No, uh, the, the, the Satan's on a leash, but the Lord is certainly using Satan's fury against his people, uh, to refine us, to teach us faith, to teach us perseverance, um, to, to, uh, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for to um, to purify mm-hmm. the church, for sure. Mm-hmm. So if if Satan can afflict us in the church, and I was particularly thinking about your your uh, sermon where you covered, I think it was Revelation eight and nine, and we thought about the those locusts with the with the human faces. What did yeah. we say? What did you say those were again? Those locusts? <laughs> those locusts. They're, 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 Apache the, helicopters? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
They had hair like women's hair, teeth like lion's teeth. They had chests with iron breastplates, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. What are those guys? The stingers like scorpions? Stingers like scorpions, yeah. Phantasmagoric images. Yeah. And their their king, uh, Revelation 9-11 is the angel of the abyss. His yeah. name in Hebrew is Abaddon. Is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's and, the first one. in Greek, Apollyon. Apollyon. So, and I think that's, that's a reference to Satan. That's Satan. Yeah. So Satan can afflict the church. You've talked about the point of, of how the Lord and his sovereignty is, you know, he doesn't just let Satan completely loose, but he's on a short leash. But uh, anyways, that, and you don't have to speak personally to Henson in particular, but how you've seen, uh, perhaps, I mean, we, we only have a limited perspective. We don't have the whole picture. We don't quite have the, the heavenly, you know, the throne room in heaven perspective yet. Uh, but any, any thoughts on how Satan can afflict us in the church in general? Have you seen churches afflicted by the enemy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and I, I, I go back again and again to, um, I think, the, the consistent message of Revelation is that the main weapon that Satan uses uh, is, is lies. Satan lies and he deceives. And through those lies and through that deceit, he discourages, he ensnares and entraps. Um, I, I don't think it's accidental that with some of these images of, of uh, the, these demonic hordes, et cetera, that, that so, there, there's a lot of attention on their mouths Right, they've got these terrible teeth. Um, uh, I, th- that happens again and again, actually, in the Book of Revelation. These different images. Uh, th- there's a there's a focus on the mouth, the the the, the teeth, uh, what's coming out of their mouths. Again, I think that just further underlines this truth that we see about Satan from the very beginning. What does he do? He comes in, and he deceives, and in in that deception. Uh, he plunges people into destructive and self-destructive immorality. Uh, He plunges people into despair and discouragement. Uh, He he clouds their minds uh, with with, with darkness. So I, I do believe that the elect are ultimately protected from that. I don't think he can finally deceive the elect, but I do think his main weapon against us uh, is is that weapon of of lying, because through those lies he is seeking to murder our souls. Now, does does Satan also have the authority to afflict bodily? Uh, apparently, and I think we see that in in, in places. Uh, does he does he is he given the authority at, at times to to bring about other kinds of suffering, maybe material suffering? Yeah, I mean we mm-hmm. see that in the Book of Job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think we should not lose sight of the fact that his main goal is our unbelief. And, and that's going to happen through his deceitful lies. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's helpful. And it couldn't help to think, but think of uh, an upcoming sermon as we think about what you just preached through, but the upcoming series on the Psalms of Ascent. And it's May 28 today as we're recording, but I don't know exactly when this episode will drop. Right. But I, I think that we'll either be preparing or have just heard a sermon on uh, Psalm 120. 
and which begins the Psalms of Ascent, Lord, rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Yeah. And uh, what will he give you and what will he do to you, deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows and with burning charcoal. And we just see that that has the lying lips, the affliction of, the, of lies um, has been uh, the affliction of God's people from the very beginning. Yeah, that's you exactly know? right. I mean, from did from, God really say exactly. Satan asked Eve? Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's and right. and of course, God wants us. Uh, Satan is going to sow lies and deceit about about God, uh, about Christ, but he's also going to sow lies and deceit about ourselves. He, he's going leadership to, authority about yeah. uh, especially about leadership and authority in the church mm-hmm. about each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he can, if he can sow seeds of distrust mm-hmm. and discord that that break up congregations, mm-hmm. or that cause them to not trust their leaders, or yeah, all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he he doesn't even need to touch our bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if 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 he's successful there, uh, churches blow up. The, the the gospel gets dragged through the mud. Yeah. You've talked. You talked in the Re- Revelation. It's clear that. Uh, that the that Satan, the prostitute, and the beast are all in concert together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot because of the current cultural milieu <laughs> is uh, is government, um, and certainly some would have the perspective that even over this last year of the pandemic, that maybe. Um, that the that Satan was using the government to afflict the church and churches not being able to meet and things like that. What what does Revelation, if anything, have to say to you? Don't have to address that situation head on because that's a that's a big that would be a, like an episode all to all itself. To itself yeah. But uh, what I was really helped in the Revelation series in terms of how we are to think about all human government. Um, certain, I mean, it was, it was funny cause I just heard, uh, Matthew Cunningham lead us in a really good Bible study upstairs last Sunday on how we are to submit hmm. and honor the authority that God has placed over us for our good. And that's authority that he has put there. And I think, you know, Peter and John, they were friends. They were, they're, they're both inspired by the spirit. But what about that particular perspective that revelation gives us on, on how we are to respond to government as Christians in the church? Yeah, so I, this is one of those places where I think we have to be able and willing to to think with great nuance and care and not simplistically about the Bible, not kind of with a proof text mentality. So on the one hand, all authority has been instituted by God, all of it. And, and of course, when, when Paul writes that, the authority he's most likely referring to is the authority of Nero, in Rome, one of the most wicked uh, uh, emperors that, that Rome ever knew. And Paul's saying, yep, and God established that authority too. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and even in its, in its corrupt and most wicked forms, he still established it and, and authorized it for good purposes. And he, our God is exactly the kind of God that can, can use fallen and corrupt human governments to accomplish good purposes generally for mankind and specifically for believers. Um, on the other hand, don't put your hope in princes. Don't put your hope in horses and chariots, right? Don't put your hope, Christian, in the authorities and powers and strengths of this world. 
uh, because at the end of the day, all human government is fallen. All human government is corrupt. All human government is more or less beastly. And uh, I think we're led to believe that as, as the days draw short and the time for Christ appearing draws closer, the beastliness of government and governments in general will show themselves more and more. So we have to hold those two things together. And they remain true. Both of those things remain true until Jesus comes back. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, yeah, I think what we can talk about maybe maybe government more in a, in a future episode. I think that would be helpful. Well, you know, one of the things I think that would be helpful, I, one of the things that people often say is God, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Hmm. Well, that's, that surely is true with government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God did a lot of really good things through the government of King Saul mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, who in the end proved, I think, to be reprobate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, we've got to be able to, on the one hand, recognize God's common grace goodness to us in government, while at the same time not never begin to think that government is our savior. Uh, or, or, or that government, we need government to come to the rescue. Yeah. And one of the things I'm thinking of, would you agree with this statement? Um, Revelation does teach us that government is beastly and at times satanic mm-hmm. um, and will lie to us. Yep. Um, and yet uh, we are still called to submit and honor the authorities that God puts over us. Yeah, that's right. It's both of those things yeah. at the same time. Right. So I think some in our congregation would wonder if that they would have uh, the strong opinion that the government has been maybe lying to us uh, during the pandemic, for example. And at the end of the day, uh, we as pastors are saying, not saying, no, they are not lying to us. They are always telling the truth. And we think that what they say are gospel. We haven't been saying that. That's correct. That is correct. What we've been saying from the beginning is we understand that it is in the the legitimate purview of government to regulate public health. And to that extent, we are going to to seek to obey their lawful orders. Mm -hmm. Not because we think they're right all the time. Not because we think they've, like like we're not reserving to ourselves this this, uh, place of private judgment Mm -hmm. where I get to, I should obey Romans 13, except when I, on my own authority, decide they're wrong. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think that's the way Romans 13 reads. Or even they're lying. Yeah. Or even they're lying. Yeah. Nope. Uh, I think I submit to government when it is with when they are acting within their legitimate purview. And mm-hmm. I think public health regulation, the elders of this church have decided that the regulation of public health is within their legitimate purview. I I could point to example after example after example where our government has been inconsistent, mm-hmm. where I think they've They've probably lied and thought it was a noble lie to mm-hmm. to to achieve a better end because mm-hmm. they were afraid if we told the truth, you know, worse things would happen. Yeah, I mean, we can point to lots of examples like that. Yeah, I don't think any of them get us off the hook. Mm-hmm. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Mm-hmm. And I think this is Caesar's. Mm-hmm. So, if you were a church during the Revolutionary War, would you know? I'm just, I'm <laughs> <not gonna continue. laughs> that is definitely a different conversation. Yeah. All right. Well. Um, Okay, so that was a little bit interpreting our our current situation through the perspective that Revelation gives us. Let's think about how to just interpret interpret the text proper 
Um, some might have been confused, uh, for example, in Revelation 11, you know, well, I guess throughout, not just in Revelation 11, but if you're listening to this podcast, you can turn there just to be reminded on on what John is doing there with some of those symbols. But just in general, we might read Revelation after the series and be really helped in interpreting our Bibles, but wonder, wait, when, when reading scripture in general, how do I know when to interpret something literally and when to interpret it symbolically? What's a, what, what's a like what's a guiding hermeneutical principle or just a couple things or resources you'd point us to because maybe I had been accustomed to reading Revelation for example pretty literally and linearly like this is the right. this is going to be the future first right. this is going to happen then this and and you the question is just in general with the whole Bible yeah let's just do let's start let's start uh, broad yeah so uh, a few things right one of the most important one of the most important things to consider is, well, what genre am I in? Uh, am I in a genre that is basically historical narrative? That it, its very purpose is to relate history, historical facts, and to relate it in a roughly chronological sequence. Now, of, of course, sometimes historical narratives also mess with chronology, but they often let you know that they're messing with chronology when they do that. Um, so what's my, what's, what genre am I in? Um, by the same token, of course, we read poetry, and we don't hold it to the rules that we would hold historical narrative. And, and in poetry, we, we recognize, oh, look at that. There are all these images, and he's saying God is, is like, a, like, a, like a mother hen that gathers her chicks under her wings, and we don't think, oh, I should imagine God is a big chicken, you know, up, mm-hmm. upstairs. No, mm-hmm. no, we, we get it. It's intuitive that, that that particular genre plays by a different set of rules than historical narrative. So, so we're always paying attention to genre, no, no matter where we are. We're also paying attention to actually what the writer of that particular book is saying. What is his purpose? What is he trying to do? And sometimes he'll even tell us how he's going to do it. Luke tells us, that he spent a lot of time researching the facts, talking to eyewitnesses, and he's trying to put it all in order. Um, uh, you know, J- John, who's also giving us in his gospel a historical narrative, he makes it really clear, I didn't tell you the half of it. I was very selective. I picked a few things because I want you to understand this one thing, that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing it, that by believing his name, you'll be saved, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there you've got an example of two authors, same genre, but they're doing it in different ways, and they've told us how they do it. So when you get to Rev- Revelation, you need to recognize, oh, I'm in the genre of apocalyptic, mm-hmm. very unusual genre for us, like that's not common, but actually a very common genre for people in the first century AD and the first century BC. There's a ton of apocalyptic writing. Amongst uh, amongst the Jews, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then amongst Christians, mm-hmm. and from that, uh, people that are a lot smarter than me mm-hmm. have spent a lot of time studying the genre as a whole, and have have been able to come up with some some basic rules of interpretation. Yeah, how do we how do we think about things that are going on there? Now, I think in Revelation itself, John tells us right away in in. In Revelation 1, 1, 
he gives us a bunch of clues that we really should be thinking symbolically. Because he says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. So several things there we know. This is a revelation. We know it's visual, that visions are coming. But it's kind of hidden in this word, he made it known. It's a very specific word that, that means he, he symbolized it. He made it known through symbols. So right there in the first couple of verses, I'm told uh, I'm looking at visions that have a visionary character. Uh, They're going to be symbolic in nature. And they're revealing not not just the the future. Actually, they're revealing Jesus Christ and and his work uh, that's going to take place on behalf of his servants. So, So... even in Revelation 1, 1 and 2, John is preparing us to think about these visions as symbolic in nature. That's really helpful. I'm going to hypothesize something and you can tell me where I'm off or, or you know, nuance this. Um, and I'm just thinking out loud here. Uh, for a number of people in our congregation and even maybe for yourself growing up in uh, conservative Bible preaching churches, there was a concern about uh, interpreting um, Scripture symbolically that it was a gateway to liberalism. Oh, exactly. So um, perhaps many of us in the church were formed as Christians and really influenced by faithful um, Bible teachers like early on in our maybe coming to Christ or formative years who really emphasized you got to interpret Scripture literally and, or because, and they were emphasizing that in the current context of this fight for the inerrancy and the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. That's right. Um, so I just, you, you uh, want to continue to defend the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. And you're, and you're not, you're not going to, this is not a gateway to saying that, oh yeah, the, the, the Christ didn't really get up from the dead no, bodily th- or anything. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. In fact, I actually want to continue to defend a literal reading of the Bible. However, um, a literal meaning reading of the Bible means one thing in historical narrative, and it means a different thing in poetry, and it means yet a different thing in apocalyptic. So if I'm in historical narrative and I get to the account of the resurrection and somebody starts telling me, oh, it didn't really happen, it's symbolic, well, that's a real problem. You're not reading historical narrative literally anymore. You have, because it's presenting it as something that happened. Um, so that's a non-literal reading of a historical event, right? Mm-hmm. But when I get to, you know, the Psalms, mm-hmm. and, I, and I understand that, that God is like a, a chicken with wings, if I read that literally, in the same way that I need to read historical narrative literally, mm-hmm. then I'm misreading the Psalms. No, when, when I'm presented with images and symbols, the literal reading of the image and symbol is to read it as an image and as a symbol. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what happens when you get to Revelation. Revelation is presenting us with symbolic visions. And if I read them literally the same way I read a gospel literally, then I am, to use the word in a, yet a different sense, literally misreading. Mm-hmm. I don't want to misread. Mm-hmm. I, I want to read it correctly. Mm-hmm. And that means reading it on its own terms, 
not a one-size-fits-all approach mm -hmm. to a a every book in the Bible. That's good. That's helpful. I'm going to give you two uh, just taste or test case scenarios. Okay. Um, so Genesis one through three. Yeah. It's historical narrative, but also has a strong poetic yeah. element to it. Um, but but we are still going to continue to hold on and teach and preach, even though there is poetry in there. Yep. That there's a historical Adam. Oh, absolutely. Jesus affirms that, and yeah, uh, it's clear even just from reading. Paul affirms it. Yeah, and even just apart from the New Testament, um, the way that even though there's kind of both and there in Genesis one yeah, through three. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think you can say like let's take Genesis one by itself. I don't think you can just say, oh, it's all poetry. Mm -hmm. You can't. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can say, oh, it's it's just straight historical narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't do that either. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a very interesting chapter that I've not yet preached on here. Uh, I understand why. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a podcast where you can do a, like seven seven sermons on the seven yeah, days of creation, there you go. and uh, we'll we'll think about. Some people feel well. We, I'm going to just move right on. Actually, to, nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. We're talking about Revelation 11, and we're thinking about. Is it in Revelation 11 that we have the temple and the two witnesses? Yeah. Um, so you said symbolically that the temple there in Revelation 11 symbolizes the church, and then you also said though that the two witnesses are also the church. So help us understand and how you took those principles that you just articulated and brought it down to understanding the, what's going on there. Yeah, so I think with Revelation 11, and this is actually more than one place in the book of Revelation, uh, John is given these visions, and they are visions. They're these visual things that he's seeing, and they are highly symbolic. And I think oftentimes they work almost more like a collage. We want to read them as, as, as if they were a photograph in which everything that I see is necessarily distinct, like ontologically, in its essence and in its being, distinct from everything else that I see, because it's this photograph of physical reality. That is not what we're getting in these visions. We're, we're getting almost like this collage of images that are all being thrown up there. And in Revelation 11, I, I, I think uh, when you begin to then dig into each of the images and their symbolic meaning by going back to the Old Testament, what you realize is, oh, they're all referring to the same thing. Mm -hmm. The temple is referring to the people of God, but but so are the two witnesses. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so when you when you when you and the temple is easy. Uh, there's and I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on that. Mm -hmm. But but the temple, uh, Jesus says, "I am the temple." Mm -hmm. We're told as the church, we are the temple. That the temple in the Old Testament was the very locus of the presence of God with His people. And there are various Old Testament prophets that even talk about the nation of Israel in that kind of temple language. Mm -hmm. So that one's a, a bit more straightforward and familiar to everyone. You can think about uh, even Stephen's uh, sermon in the book of Acts and what he's doing there um, in that sermon to think about how the, the church was thinking about the, the temple. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. Not so much what's there, but what's what's missing, what he's saying to the religious leaders at that time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a great example. Yeah. Carry on, though. But then but, but then you get to the two witnesses who are all of a sudden introduced without any... Like, he's talking about the temple, and then all of a sudden he says, I will grant my two witnesses. Wait, wait, I thought we were talking about the temple. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden we're talking about two witnesses. Mm -hmm. Well, where does that come from? It comes from Zechariah 4. And when you go back and you look at Zechariah 4, who are the two witnesses, they are these two representative figures, probably priest and king, who stand for the people. Mm -hmm. they, they stand for the whole redeemed people of God. Mm -hmm. Why two? 
because they are giving legal testimony. That that symbolic uh, and legal use of the number two goes right back to uh, the Pentateuch and the requirement that things be established, not on the testimony of one, but on the testimony of two or, or three. And so all of a sudden, you, when you, you realize, oh, he's, he's referencing all of these Old Testament passages about the temple, but now all of a sudden he's also repre- you know, referencing uh, Zechariah 4 and, and these two witnesses, and he's kind of slammed them up against each other hmm. to help us recognize, oh, it's not just that we are protected and yet persecuted, but we have a, we have a job to do, mm-hmm. and that is to give testimony. Mm-hmm. And that testimony, that legal testimony, which goes out through the gospel, it is going to be given. Mm-hmm. And the world's not going to be stop it. As you, know, as you go through Revelation 11, the world's not going to be able to stop it a- until the very end. Uh, and though it appears that it's been stopped, it's going to be very brave. And then the, the, the church, the people of God are resurrected and vindicated in the sight of all. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just, it's, it's the clear and consistent message of all those other sections of Revelation. They, right. they, they, they give that same message. Mm-hmm. That use different images. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that yeah. that's how I get there. I gotcha. Is by paying attention to, okay, how are the how are the images being used in their context in Revelation? Now, what's their background? What what did they represent in their in their background? Uh, and which then feeds back into now. Let me go back and look at the original context again, mm-hmm. and you realize, oh, he's painting a picture of the church under persecution, faithful in testimony, Mm -hmm. ultimately vindicated by the Lord. I have to say that the interpretation that uh, left behind the left behind books take was is a little more uh, colorful and memorable. But actually, <laughs> that gets to the purpose of symbols in part, right? I mean, exactly. That's, he, I mean, this could have been this book could have been written in just straight like prose or just straight argument, um, but we would have lost the. I mean, I think we would have lost the evocative power of right, it. Right. That, that inspires us to faithfulness and that lets us find ourselves in these pages. That's good. That's good. Hey, we've already gone over time a little bit, but uh, certainly you're, I would have to say that maybe your most controversial sermon for this congregation was your, your bold sermon on Revelation 20. Mm-hmm. Um, you said the millennium has already begun. Christ is reigning among his people. Um, uh, we, we talked in the previous episode of kind of your, your journey uh, did you get some feedback from the congregation on that Revelation 20 sermon, or not much? I mean, the the main feedback I got on the Revelation 20 sermon, mm-hmm. there were probably two, two or three things. One, oh, I don't think you convinced me, but I understand the view better now, and it doesn't seem so crazy. Hey, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, <laughs> right. Um, the, the, the second piece of feedback I got was, um, oh, I, you, you might have convinced me. I kind of like this. This is a simpler view. It seems more consistent uh, with the other things, you know, uh-huh, that, that uh-huh. I read in the New Testament. Yeah. Like, okay, that's good. Uh, and the third comment that I got uh, that really kind of didn't have to do with taking sides on, on which way you take it was just how encouraging uh, the that that thought, r- regardless of which view you take right. on the millennium, right. how encouraging that thought is that that actually... We are already reigning with Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. 
So, but after the sermon, you didn't have anybody come forward and pray to receive all millennialism <laughs> into their heart? No. Okay. No, well, no. there's always a, a second try. Yeah, I could, I, I guess I failed. No, I, actually, what I want to get at there more is how would you encourage us as a congregation? Lots of all, all there's always opportunities for, for conflict, for misunderstanding, um, because of our differences of perspective, opinion, interpretation of Scripture, how would you encourage us as a congregation to pursue unity when we maybe have very strong convictional views on, say, even the millennium, but to, to, to love one another and be humble? Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, and we say this all the time, our unity is in the gospel. It's in Christ. Mm-hmm. And whether you're pre-mill or a-mill, uh, we, we agree that, that Christ died to save us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He died a penal substitutionary death, and that we are saved by faith in him mm-hmm. as we repent of our sins and put our trust in him, and that we are looking forward to his return. Amen. And so, yeah, we might disagree on the specifics of the the timing and kind of what what will or will not happen, you know, right before he comes or right after he comes. Okay, we're going to disagree on that. Um but our unity is in the person and work of Christ uh, in his first and in his second coming, whether that comes in two parts or one. I kind of, at the end of the day, if I'm wrong on, on these details, uh, I'm not, I mean, I don't even think I'll be sad when I learn that I'm wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, uh, Christ, Christ still wins, mm-hmm. Christ, Christ comes back, Christ mm-hmm. reigns. Um, I, I think we can approach these differences in ways that continue still to encourage one another, to put our hope in the in in Christ's return. To, as Paul says in First Thessalonians, uh, chapter one, verses nine and ten, you know the Thessalonians turned from their idols to God to serve the living and true God and to wait on his son from heaven to mm. wait. You know, that's mm-hmm. what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we've, we've, we've reoriented our hopes. We've reoriented our lives so that I'm, I'm not waiting for my ticket to come in. I'm not waiting to strike it rich. I'm not waiting you know, for this or that circumstance. I'm waiting for Christ to come back. Amen. Yeah. Well, that's a great place to conclude, although I think I'd be remiss to... Uh, to um, not say anything about um, the soundtrack that you uh. provided for us for the book of Revelation. Maybe mm. for some, maybe the enduring memory of the series on Revelation. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Oh, well, wrong button. <laughs> What was your kids' reaction when you they uh, were sang mortified? That? Yeah, I sat down and they said, "We don't know you. Who are you?" <laughs> oh, that's too good. I'll I'll always remember every time I hear that song. Now I'm going to remember you singing that in the pulpit, and I'm also going to take uh, some partial responsibility because we were talking about we were the you and I talked about sermon it, the REM. Song. Yeah, yeah. Michael, it's the end of this episode as we know it, and I feel fine. Me too. Thank you for having this conversation today. Thanks, Dan.
Bernstein, Liam, Nat, Brass, Nat, Lenny, Richard, Lester, Banks, Birthday Party, Cheesecake, Jelly, Bean, Boom, Symbiotic, Patriotic, Slam,